to communicate with each other across the political spectrum, I think it's important to understand how people's brains respond differently to certain kinds of stimuli. How would the brain of a conservative versus a liberal react to the same message? In this episode of Campus on the Common, we'll talk with Dr. Ruth Grossman about your brain on politics. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the lens of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Dr. Ruth Grossman, welcome to Campus on the Common. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the neuroscience of political messaging, something that keeps many people up at night. (laughs) More importantly, how is neuroscience actually related to political messaging? Well, I think there's an increasing interest in understanding how people make political decisions. Um, How do people choose who they vote for, what kinds of political ads work well for what kinds of populations. Uh, So people are trying to understand how people's brains work, how their minds tick, and what leads them to their choices. And neuroimaging is just one of those tools that is very tempting to want to use for understanding how people's brains work. I think it's a little bit problematic because the tool doesn't necessarily always ask, um, match the question that people ask, but it's certainly a tempting thing to want to do to understand what makes people make certain choices. So is this to say that a political strategist would use an MRI in a test group to actually take a look at the messaging they're thinking about deploying into the public? Um, yeah, that certainly has been done. I mean, I think a lot of uh, a lot of studies into political messaging and how it's received by people is done via focus groups. And you're legitimately just asking people, you know, what did you think of this ad? What did you think of this message? How would you want it to, to be different? What kind of impact did it have? And that's, I think, a very solid way of doing that kind of research. But there certainly have been studies where people have looked at brainwaves in response to certain images or certain messages and and looked at how responsive people are to certain ways of shaping a message. And there was there was a study a number of years ago looking at campaign ads for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, and it was sort of widely trounced as a horrible piece of neuroscience. But it was also before that widely quoted as a piece of proof of you know how people make these sorts of decisions. So that was one of those places where political interest in in political messaging and and understanding people's decision making kind of bumped up against the structures and functions of neuroimaging and and neuroscience in general. How would this all work? I imagine that you you ask a question or you show some kind of visual to get a, a neurological response. But then once you have that data, how do you correlate that with a larger sample? The larger sample piece is problematic in and of itself because neuroimaging tends to be expensive. So people wind up not having a large sample. So you wind up, um, you know, collecting data on a smaller sample of people and, and just generalizing from there. And that's always statistically something that you need to account for. But more important, I think, is the kind of question that you ask and how you question and how you ask it, uh, and whether it is the kind of question that neuroimaging can answer. So, just to give you a little bit of a background in how neuroimaging, let's focus on functional MRI uh, works. So, everybody knows what an MRI is, right? It's the thing that that shows you beautiful pictures of your knee or whatever part of your anatomy you need to have you need to have imaged. And it can also take just structural pictures of your brain, which is very cool and has a lot of detail in it. And then it can also, through a different method, record what parts of your brain are currently active 
or more active than other parts of your brain. I'm not going to get into to the background of that, but if you're putting somebody into an MRI, you can show them videos of things, you can show them images, you can play them sounds, you can make them respond to certain kinds of stimuli in their environment and record what parts of their brain are active during those times. So if you're keeping very close tab on, you know, at this millisecond, I showed them this picture, at this millisecond, I showed them that picture, you can then compare those time points in that, that whole recording that you get of brain activity and say they were more active in this area when they saw this picture than when they saw that picture. However, in order to get any kind of reasonable answer, you need to do exactly that. You need to compare two time points or two, instant time, uh, two instances of two different videos or two different images against each other. And you have to know all the different things that your brain is doing while you're just sort of existing in this MRI. So you're lying in the MRI, you're looking at a video of Hillary Clinton talking to, you know, an audience. And that's one of the things that your brain is doing. But the other things that your brain is doing is lying in a narrow tube, listening to loud banging noises from the MRI, feeling cold, wondering whether you left the iron on in your house, freaking out by being claustrophobic in this little space, right? There's a thousand other things that are going on in your head at that time. And all of that gets recorded through brain activity in the functional MRI. So if you want to understand about one particular thing, that somebody might have been thinking about, you need to have a comparison task where you subtract out all that other stuff. So some other thing where you're also lying in the magnet, freaking out about the dog, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? And those two tasks that you're comparing have to be very equivalent with one difference, right? So if, for example, I wanted to know what part of your brain is most responsive when you're looking at happy faces. I could show you a bunch of happy faces and then a bunch of neutral faces, and I could then compare your brain activity to when you're looking at a happy face versus a neutral face, and that will give me your brain's response to happy, right, as opposed to anything else. And that leads back to what kinds of questions can you ask about political messaging, because if I show you a 90-second ad for one politician and compare that to a 90-second ad of a different politician, that is not a comparison that I can actually interpret, right? There are so many things going on in those different videos that are completely different. There's different sights, different sounds, different, different images, right? Different ideas, different thought processes. And I cannot directly compare those two and make any kind of conclusion about what your brain was actually doing differently for one versus the other. And that's where a lot of that neuroscience to political science connection kind of falls apart. I can understand how a scientist would look at an MRI as an objective tool by which we can make measurements on a certain group of people or individuals within a group. What, I'm, what they didn't really talk about is, okay, we can talk to, about Joe the plumber, middle-class guy right. uh, from a blue-collar town, mm-hmm. um, Went to high school, he's white, you know, he's 38 years old, he's got 2.3 kids. That's Joe. But what about Fred and Mary and right. Nancy and all these other people? Right. How does their demographics, how does their psychographics actually come to play right. in terms of the impact of political messaging? 
Right. And that's a very good question. Um, and so obviously you can collect the brain data, right, on let's say a representative sample of 50 people, right? You should be so lucky to get 50 people, for example, in a functional MRI. Um, but you also then have to know things about those people, right? So you have to collect some demographic information about them. Do you, are, do you consider yourself conservative or liberal? Do you, what's your age range, right? All, what's your gender? Like all of these things that have an impact. We know those things have an impact on how people vote, right? Uh, race, ethnicity, upbringing, geog geography, right? All of these things vary person to person, and they, they have an impact on, on how we vote and, and how we perceive messages. So you do have to know those pieces of information about them. And then you wind up grouping people into different groups that you can compare against each other, right? So if I have a group of 25 people who declare themselves to be politically liberal, and I show them certain images, and I measure their brain responses to those images, that gives me some information about this cohort, right? And then I compare that to a group of 25 people who consider themselves politically conservative. I show them the same images. And now I can do a between group comparison of, um, you know, is there a difference in how conservatives and liberals respond to certain kind of imagery? And those kinds of studies are being done. And those are, I think, solid studies where, look, where you know, you, you have very discrete kinds of stimuli that you actually can measure and compare against each other. And you can look at how having a certain political frame of mind changes the way you respond to some very basic imagery, you know, basic messages, that kind of thing. And it sort of brings up the big question, is a liberal brain different than a conservative brain? <laughs> yeah, I think that is the question that everybody's trying to, uh, trying to answer. And I think there's a fair amount of evidence that that is true. There are a number of studies looking at the fact that people who consider themselves liberal or conservative respond differently to images that are more uh, negative or positive, so that people might be more responsive to something that could induce fear versus something that could induce you know, a positive, happy emotion, or that people respond stronger or less strongly for something that could induce fear, or in essence, that people demonstrate more of a fear response to different kinds of images, right? And that's a lot of what political messaging lives on, is, you know, how do I tap into the things that people are afraid of and then promise you that I can protect you from that? And there are a number of studies uh, looking at brain responses to that kind of imagery and finding some pretty significant and, uh, and consistent responses. But of course, that's, you know, again, if you're looking at a sample of 25 people in an MRI, right, there may be many other reasons for why somebody responds a certain way, uh, not just whether they consider themselves liberal or, or conservative. And in addition, and this is the other caveat about neuroimaging, is that you can get an answer of, you know, they responded strongly to this, right? They're stronger EEG brain waves in certain areas or, you know, stronger brain response on an fMRI in a certain area of the brain or just a response in this area versus that area. But that doesn't necessarily tell you why. You just know that people responded. Are there any other means of measuring people's emotions? You mentioned perhaps biometrics? Yeah. So biometrics is one thing that people use where they look at uh, electrodermal activity, which is basically that hand sweat response and, um, and uh, a heart rate variability as well. So you can do, you know, it's sort of, it's in essence what a lie detector works on, right? It's, it's electrodes on the hands, on the palms of the hand. The polygraph. And, yeah which, you know, we know is not all that reliable <laughs> either. Um, and you can certainly gather those kinds of data, and you can tell whether somebody is more or less 
aroused, biophysiologically aroused in response to certain images, right? Positive images or negative images. But that's basically all you can tell. It's hard to tell from, or potentially impossible to tell from those kinds of data, whether somebody was positively aroused or negatively so, right? So you can say that somebody responded more strongly to this image, but you don't necessarily know without speaking to them whether they thought that was a positive experience or a negative experience, right? It's really a lot, and that, that happens with a lot of brain science in general, where you can get, well, this part of the brain responded, but I'm not entirely sure why. And I don't know whether, you know, there's other parts of the brain that might also have responded. I don't know which one is the more important one. When I first got into the field of neuroimaging, I was very, very excited about the possibilities of not having to guess anymore, that you could actually look at somebody's brain while they were thinking, while they were responding to something, and I wouldn't have to try and guess at what their underlying thought process was. I could, it was right there, right? It lit up as a bright red thing on an MRI image. It wasn't that exciting. And it wasn't until I did it for a few years that I realized that, well, yes, something lights up, but I still don't know why. Uh, right? So this part of the brain was involved in processing this kind of stimulus, but I don't know if it was crucial for processing that kind of stimulus. I don't know if it was involved because it was actively trying to suppress a response in that part of the brain. I don't know if this is the primary place that it was supposed to be lining up for. So there's still a lot of unknowns around neuroimaging in that respect. And you just have to understand the limitations and the abilities of the tools. They are incredibly powerful and fantastic tools for answering very well certain kinds of questions. But you have to know what kinds of questions to ask. Otherwise, you don't get a lot of meaningful data. So it's not quite mind reading yet. Very much not. And probably that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> when you look at a liberal versus a conservative brain, are there certain stimuli that you can objectively say, well, if you have a liberal brain, you're more inclined to think in a liberal manner, you will react this way. A conservative brain will more, more generally react a different way given the same type of stimuli? There are a number of studies out there on this and a number of books written about this. Um, and I don't want to do injustice by summarizing this, but like very, very broadly, I think... Uh, there's some level of consensus that uh, political, politi politically liberal brains respond more strongly to positive imagery and politically conservative brains respond more strongly to negative imagery. What exactly that means and what does positive mean versus negative mean? Because a lot of that is in the eye of the beholder as well, right? There are clearly differences that people are finding, but I don't think we fully understand yet what those differences mean and how they actually relate to, you know, how they really bridge that that connection between brain function and um, and political leanings. I assume we haven't seen any academic papers come out yet that say definitively that messages put in this particular format will definitely cause a bigger reaction from a liberal group versus a conservative group. And by the way, here's how you do it. What I am hearing is it would seem to make sense that um, a positive message would seem to resonate more with a, a liberal progressive mind versus a lack of resource type of approach, uh, an anxiety-provoking approach might seem to work more distinctly with a conservative group. I think that's that sounds like human nature to begin with. But what I'm hearing is science has, they're leaning that way, but they haven't quite quantified that. I think, I think we're beginning to quantify it, but in limited chunks, right? It's, you sort of have to extrapolate from 
this is how people respond to images of happy children playing versus images of people pointing a gun at you, right? And how does that then relate to how are you going to vote in the next election? That's the connection that I don't think has been fully fleshed out yet. So a lot of the neuroscience is still, I think, the good neuroscience is still a sort of on a, on a more basic level of, you know, how do you respond to pictures and and how can we then, I guess, put those pictures into a political ad and see if we can speak to you. But I think that the direct line between that and how are you going to vote is not quite there. Do we see any activity on the part of political strategists moving towards science, looking for that new scientific break, whether it's the study of neurology or neurochemistry or other means like that by which they can better communicate persuade, convince, and or manipulate their audiences? I think that's definitely happening. I mean, it's, it's, trying to use, it's trying to use every tool at hand to try and make sure that your message lands exactly the way you want it to land and becomes as convincing as possible to the largest group of people possible, right? And that's, that's learning how to message to your base. It's learning how to message to those who are undecided. I think people are just trying to use every tool they possibly can to help them do that. When we look at the brain, one of the things I've been taught is there's essentially three different sections of the brain. There's the reptilian brain, the limbic brain, the neocortex. So if I understand it correctly, the reptilian brain is fight or flight. The limbic brain is essentially where emotions reside and decisions are made. And then the neocortex is more communications and fact. Now with that, it's interesting that the optic nerve, as well as the auditory gland, comes into this almost the junction of the reptilian brain and the, the limbic brain. If that's the case, it would seem to make sense that what we see and what we hear obviously influences our emotions. Is this all hooey? Is there something to this? It's, <laughs> if we were to dissect the brain into those three sections, is that something that political strategists actually keep in mind? Or is it more perhaps we know that if we go after their emotions, if we get them by their emotions, <laughs> their hearts their minds, and of course, their wallets will follow. Everything else will follow. It's all about getting you by the emotions. Basically, a lot of decision-making happens in the coordination of all of the systems that your brain has to offer, right? So you have sensory input that gets processed in a certain way, and then it is processed further by recruiting your memory of having seen or heard something like this before and how you felt when you saw or heard that before and what the consequences of that were and what is the social context in which you find yourself and what are you trying to achieve and there's a thousand different layers to every kind of decision that your brain makes in a split second and it's really drawing on all of its resources simultaneously. There's a lot of interconnectivity in the brain that that's trying to pull together so that you're, you're very highly presumably evolved frontal lobes that are trying to help you make decisions that are appropriate to the social context and that take into account who you are and what your status in this, in your current situation is and, and all of that, and, but, but feeding into your, all of your primal emotional responses and your memories and you know, what you really want versus what you think you ought to do. Uh, and all of that just gets bundled together and connected into what your response ultimately is going to be. So it's really not something that you can segment out. Your brain comes as an interconnected jumble of wires. The, um, the totality of the complexity, as someone once said. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it is not possible to respond with only one part of your brain and not the other. They're all going to be working together at all times. 
So because the brain is so complex, I could see how this would really have an impact on using MRIs and that there's so many variables that you have to account for that you'd have to filter out that it might give you some nice antidotes. But from what I'm hearing is it it can't give you hard science in terms of black and white. It it is or it is not effective approach. It's sort of, we see that this particular stimuli is generally occurs within this group, but we're not certain. It can give you hard and fast answers for the right kind of question. I think that's sort of the important piece to remember that if you're a neuroscientist, you can ask a lot of really important questions of neuroimaging and of neuroimaging data because you ha- you can set up a study to allow for a specific comparison of what this particular brain area does in this context versus that context. And you can get a hard and fast answer of, you know, is it involved in this? Is it not involved in this? You know, in this context, is it still involved in this or is it not no longer involved in this? But you have to think about what that question is. And if your question becomes too broad of, you know, how do you feel about this video, that's not a question that neuroimaging can answer in that respect, right? It can answer a question about whether your visual system responds more strongly to black and white checkerboards or red and green checkerboards. It can answer questions even within sort of more higher level thinking kinds of realms about uh, language processing, you know, more complex grammatical sentences versus less complex grammatical sentences, ambiguous pronouns versus specific pronouns, right? Those kinds of questions it can answer. But when you're starting to ask a very broad question about who do you like in the upcoming election, and now let me watch, let me show you a couple of three-minute clips and see what you think, that's way too much information and way too much stimulation and way too much thought process to throw at functional MRI and try to make any sense of the resulting data. You're just going to get a whole bunch of active brain regions, but you will have no idea why. Apart from political messaging, are there any other areas where they're using neuroimaging to better understanding communications? Oh, absolutely. There are a lot of studies uh, using, very successfully, using using neuroimaging for uh, studies of language function in people who've had strokes, in, you know, child language development, and just understanding how the brain processes any number of stimuli that we're exposed to in a daily basis, vision, smell, sounds, language in general. Absolutely. Uh, it's an incredibly valuable tool for learning to understand how the brain functions in different situations. You just have to ask the right question. Is cultural one of the factors you have to work with in terms of the questions you ask? Well, it's certainly one of the things you would want to know about the people that you're sticking in the scanner. And that's part of the demographic information that you're that you're going to have to get. So, you know, what, whatever your cultural background is, whether that's based on race, ethnicity, socioeconomic, you know, the geography of where you were raised, et cetera, all of that is going to factor into how you respond to any kind of stimulus in the world. So I'm going to want to know who you are before I stick you in the scanner. And I'm going to want to take that information into account when I analyze the resulting data. So if I become interested in how people across different socioeconomic groupings view certain stimuli, I'm going to want to group people based on that, right? And start looking at their brain responses across those two groups. For sure, that's information that you're going to have to get about who the brains are that you are studying. Dr. Ruth Grossman, give us three takeaways for our audience. Well, 
I want to make sure that people don't come away from this thinking that it is impossible to use brain imaging techniques to study how people make political decisions or or how the brains of people of how the brains work of people who have different kinds of political leanings. I think there are important questions that we can and should ask that will help guide us in in better communicating across the political spectrum. Not just necessarily for, you know, campaign ads, but just to communicate with each other across the political spectrum. I think it's important to understand how people's brains respond differently to certain kinds of stimuli. Uh, so I think that's an important avenue of research to to further pursue. I think the other thing to know is that brain imaging is, it's a fantastic tool. It's very tempting. It's very exciting. There are a lot of different things that are very, very good about it. But we also do have to understand its limitations. And we have to understand that we can learn a lot about what's going on in people's brains, but not necessarily why it's happening, or even what the implications are of this particular part of the brain having lit up in response to a certain stimulus. And that sort of, I guess, leads to the the final takeaway, which is, you know, any tool is only as good as the person using it. So I think for this line of research to really come into its own and to be valuable, you need to have collaborations between neuroscientists and political scientists to talk about, you know, what are the important questions that we would want to understand about how people respond to political messages, how people communicate with each other across uh, the political spectrum. You know, what are the what are the stumbling blocks that keep us from, you know, being more cooperative, bipartisan, etc., while at the same time understanding what the limitations of the techniques are that we can use to, em- to employ to answer those questions. So I think it's really going to have to be strongly collaborative work and interdisciplinary work in order to get good answers to the questions that will help us better communicate and better understand how each other's minds work. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. We spoke with Dr. Ruth Grossman, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication Science and Disorders at Emerson College. I'm your host, Mark Brody. We had engineering support from David Craighead and editorial direction from Andrew Cassidy. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.